All right, glad you're here this morning. I want to talk to you about family today. You know, that's, that's something that all of us know a little bit about. We certainly have some different experiences when it comes to our own families and family experiences. When you say the word family, it evokes different sort of pictures and thoughts and memories. How many of you in the last, I don't know, year or so have been to a family reunion? Raise your hand. Been to some of you? Last couple of years, family reunion? Those are fun. I, I remember the last time I went to a family reunion, some of the people there you know, and it's good to see them, you know, maybe some cousins you haven't seen for a while, a favorite uncle or aunt, that's, your, you know, or depending on where you're from, aunt, I guess. Um, you know, people that you look forward to seeing, man, I, I hope so-and-so is going to be there, or, man, I haven't seen her in so long, or this is going to be great. And then there's some people there that you go, like, who is that? And I, I've never met them before. And you leave there thinking, how in the world am I related to some of these people? I mean, we're, we're nothing at all alike. I mean, I know we can do those genealogy things and show that our genealogy pool looks fairly similar, our gene pool, but man, values and lifestyle and choices and behaviors and appearances and all that, man, we are not at all alike. And it reminds you of something. Even though you can be related by flesh and blood out to different levels and circles, you can still be pretty disconnected from some of those folks not know them very well, not know anything about them, not be close to them in any sort of measurable way, even a natural family. But what I want to remind us all today is this. When God forms a church, he forms a supernatural family, a family whose bonds are closer and tighter, deeper and longer than any natural bonds this world knows, even flesh and blood family. I mean, this was the sort of teaching that Jesus was, given, was giving when he was saying, who are my brothers and sisters, father and mother? It's those who obey me. God makes a supernatural family that's different than anything that this world knows. And it really sets the course for what a church is supposed to be first and the identity we have as God's people, but also what a church is supposed to do. How do we live together as family? I, I want to take your thoughts back just to, for a moment to the call to worship text we saw in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, we saw this picture starting in verse 11 of who we used to be. And look at the two categories there, the uncircumcision and the circumcision. You know, when Jewish people in the first century referred to people who were very much unlike them, culturally, religiously, ethnically even, they called them the uncircumcision. Those are the people who are unclean, unlike us. These are, these are not followers of God. It was very difficult in the early church for them to accept that those people who came from such different backgrounds, didn't have the Jewish culture and understanding, didn't have the foundation of that law and upbringing, could ever possibly be the same as them, brothers and sisters of them. But look at what God does. He takes those people who are as different as can be, the uncircumcision, those pagans out there, those people from different countries and different cultures, different ethnicities, different religious backgrounds, and he blends them together with the circumcision, the Jewish people, the people to whom Jesus himself belonged, where the gospel began. He takes those people together and he makes them family. And look what it says at the end, verse 18, through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. As a result, we're no longer strangers, we're not aliens, we are instead fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's own household. This is what God does when he builds a church. A church is not just a community of like-minded people. It's not just a community of people who like one another. It's not just a community of people who enjoy the same sort of things, or the same sort of teaching, or the same sort of music. 
It's not a community of people who simply go to the same place and receive the same services. Biblically speaking, a church is far deeper, far broader than any of those things. It's a family. People who once were aliens to one another and to God, outsiders and even enemies to one another and to God, strangers at the very least to one another and to God, who are now sitting at the same table. People who are family, supernatural family. So I want you to write these thoughts down before I delve into the heart of this message, some presuppositions about the text we're about to look at. Now we're still in 1 Timothy, if you're wondering. I'm going to get there, 1 Timothy chapter 5, so you can open your Bible and you can sort of put your thumb there, or if it's a digital Bible, whatever you do to mark it. But in just a moment, I'm going to hit that text. But I want to begin with these presuppositions. The first one is this, when God designed the church, and by the way, the church is God's design. It is not a human design. And that's one of the nonsensical anti-church statements we hear in our culture today. You know, I can follow Christ without a church. Church is just man-made stuff. I, I don't need a church to be a Christian. Well, that's nonsense. When you became a Christian, you became part of the church. And the only way to experience all the ministries of, benefits of, and complete the responsibilities of that capital C church you became a part of is to be part of a small C church, a local fellowship of believers, people with real flesh and blood. Real lives that you intersect with. Real people that you serve and love and care for and pour your life into and vice versa in the local church. But God's design for his church is a supernatural, gospel-revealing community. The church itself is designed to reveal the gospel. Again, that's from Ephesians chapter 2. Look what God has done. God has made you into something you weren't before. God has taken so many of you who used to be this used to live this way, believe this way, act this way. You were once this, but look at what I have made you. And that's in chapter 1. And in chapter 2, look what I've made you together. It's a supernatural community. So now I've brought together people who normally would not be together, Jews and Gentiles, the circumcised and the uncircumcised. Now I've brought together these different ethnic groups that before did not relate, these different nationalities that did not worship together, gather together, have fellowship together. I brought together these different components of people and society, the world. I put them together in a way that the world would never put together on its own and said to you, look, this is what the gospel does. The gospel takes many people, many different kinds of people, all kinds of people, and makes them one people, one new, unique people, my family. This newly formed community as we've seen in that passage I just read and Tyler read at the beginning, is notable for two things, its breadth and its depth. Breadth and depth. I borrow these concepts, by the way, from a great book I encourage you to read. We still have copies of it down in the bookstore. I've been giving away these uh, all the time called The Compelling Community, which is all about God's design for the church. But this is the premise to what the book further explores, but the idea that breadth and depth marks the church. First, the breadth. Again, how wide and broad is the church? Every tribe, every tongue, every nation God includes. Who, who does he disclude? What sort of person, what sort of people would he exclude from his church? No one. Everybody everywhere is invited to be part of this. Every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's the breadth of it. But what is the depth of it? When we talk about the depth of the church, what are we talking about? It doesn't just bring people together. It's not just people who, again, enjoy the same things like the same things, or like one another. It's the depth of relationship that goes to the core of what is probably the most critical relationship that any of us enjoy, what we're most connected to, what we would give our lives for, and that's our own families. When the scripture describes the depth of the church, it goes as deep as possible, this whole new humanity, 
that's formed, according to Ephesians 2.15, has its expression in 2.19 as a household. And so the concept that Scripture employs to define this new community, this supernatural community that displays the gospel, this community that is, that is broad in people and types and deep in its relationships, the term that Scripture uses is family. Family. Remember the hub of Paul's letter to Timothy? 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Everything else emanates from this center. This is what the letter was about. This is what the purpose was. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church. The household of God, which is the church of the living God, a household. Now, if this is God's design, and it is, if God's design is to create a new humanity, a new family, different, broader, and deeper, better and longer than our natural families even, if this is God's design, and it's broad and deep and, and real and it's family, it presumes a couple of things before we look at this text, okay? A couple of assumptions are necessary. If a church is going to be family, that means a church necessarily requires multi-generational relationships, right? How many of you have multi-generational relationships in your family? How many of you still have your grandparents in your life? Raise your hand. Man, it's a blessing, right? I know it's a blessing because I am one. I'm a, I'm a blessing to my, grand, to my, my granddaughter. <laughs> if you have grandparents, they're a blessing. If you don't, you know how much you miss them. How many of you have grandchildren? Raise your hand. Look at all the old people in here. <laughs> this church is old. How about great-grandchildren? Any great, how many of you have great-grandchildren? Proudly. Come on, raise your hand. Any great-greats? Might get a little bit crazy. Multi-generational. Listen, that, that's God's design. One of the weaknesses of the modern church so often, and we see this in so many places, in new churches and new developments and church plants and that sort of thing, is that they're so homogenous. Right? They're so homogenous. I mean, every, everybody fits in this tight window of ages and lifespan. And if everybody around you is in the same stage of life, has the same life experiences as you do, then who, who's going to counsel you about what comes next? If everybody around you has been married for 10 to 15 years, who's going to tell you how to be married for 50 years or more? Anybody in this room married for 50 years or more? Now, let me do this. I'm not trying to shine the shoes of those of you who are, but I want you to stand up just for a second. I'm not trying to embarrass you, but yes, yeah, stand. If you've been married 50 years or more, I want you to stand up. Now, hold up. Don't sit down yet. Okay, so don't. All right, hold up. Stand, keep standing. Don't sit down yet. Don't sit down. I know for some of you it's hard, David. I know you're old. I know you want to sit. Just hang in there. Okay, so here's the deal. You've been married for five or six years, and you're getting your advice about marriage from other people who've been married five or six years? How about getting some advice from these people in this, that are standing right here? And they'll tell you how to do that, how they've been married for, for 50 years. Thanks, you guys, can, you guys can be seated. You can be seated. Anybody in this room been married for three years or less? How about three years or less? Will you stand? Three years or less? Don't be shy. I'm just going to make the number high until I get people standing. <laughs> Thanks, Sydney. Thanks, Noah. Appreciate you guys standing. Thank you. Three years. We praise God for you, and we're glad y'all can be seated. You can be seated because you don't have any. You don't know anything that we need to know. Um, <laughs> but we're glad that you're here because this is God's intent for you that you should grow. How many of you have been Christians now? How many of you in this room have been Christians for fifty years or more? You've been a follower of Jesus Christ for fifty years or more. Will you stand? Fifty years or more. As Christians, stand. Look at that legacy of faith. 
Now, you guys can be seated. Now, how about those of you who've been Christians for five years or less? You're still a fairly new believer. Five years or less, you've been a follower of Jesus Christ. Any of those? Five years or less? Thank you. In this room, you have spiritual mothers and fathers, spiritual grandfathers, grandmothers. And that's God's intent. God's family presumes these multi-generational relationships. But if they're going to be multi-generational relationships, this is where we go from concept to practice. There have to be multi-generational engagements. In other words, we have to be intentional about this. This means we can't stay in our same pockets and cul-de-sacs just with people who are like us. You know, for a long time, the philosophy of church, church growth, Sunday school, small groups, was all about homogenous groups. You know, that's how you'll attract people, and that's how you'll develop people and grow people. And we did that for a long, long time. And so you, if you've been in Calvary for a number of years, you probably at one point were in a Sunday school class that was for adults with children who were in preschool. And then, because groups never changed, and just the names of groups changed, then your group suddenly became adults with children, period. And then it became adults with children and students with teenagers. And now you're just a bunch of adults with adult age kids. And well, there's nothing wrong with connecting with people that we have lots of things in common with. And, and, and there's nothing wrong with sharing life experiences and how we do this thing called Christianity together. We would naturally do that without Christ. We would naturally do that. We, we would naturally hang out with people our own age, our own stage of life, kids like ours or adults like ours or no kids like we have no kids, those kind of things. We would do that naturally. What do we do supernaturally? Supernaturally, we want to be among those who are younger than we are and older than we are. People that we can impart our lives into and people that we can learn from. People that we can watch and see as examples and people we can be examples for. And that requires intentionality. And that's why we keep pushing this idea, this concept, that when you come to worship, when you come to church, let me back that up, X that out, not coming just to this part of what we do as a church. But when you come together as a church, you're not simply coming just for yourself to what you can hear and receive, what benefits might be there, what you can learn, what you might enjoy. You're coming for the sake of all those people around you. And so practically speaking, there's some things that you can do. Okay, this will ruffle some of your feathers a little bit, but that's okay. These are some things you can do. You can stop sitting in the same place all the time. Now that will throw me a curve because that's how I sort of uh, roughly keep up with who's here and who's not here. Now, I can't possibly measure hundreds of people, but typically I know where people sit who sit in the same places, and if you're not there, then I get concerned. Hey, I haven't seen Curtis in a while. He's normally sitting right there. At the same time, there's some value in just moving around. Moving around, you're going to discover the different neighborhoods that make up this community called Calvary. You're going to find different people. Also, an encouragement is this. When you come in, don't just go and sit down. Walk around meet people and talk to them. And I know sometimes we're a little bit nervous because we don't want to be that awkward person that says, hey, are you new here? No, I've been here for 17 years. <laughs> but it's okay. That's how we get to know each other. That's how we learn who each other are. So we move around. We talk to one another. One thing you could do is attend some of our open classes. Maybe take a little break from your life group, your community that you're already close to and already connected to, and get connected with some other people. Meet some new people. In the fall, when we begin our Sunday night services, we call them family services, not just because they're for people with lots of kids, though they are for people with lots of kids. They're for the family, the church family. Come and be part of that and get to know other people and connect with, with one another. Here's something else you can do. When you go out to lunch today after church, which I know a lot of you probably will, go with some new people. Invite some people to go with you. When you get together after church, it's this intentional engagement. This is what we're talking about. So all that's just prelude. Let's get started. Let's pray.
Father God, show us your will in this text. Reveal yourself to us. Show us what you'd have us to do. Father, give us a desire to do it, to do what pleases you. And by your spirit, the power and the desire to do it. Father, be at work in us to accomplish these things that please you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to go through this text rather quickly because I want to focus on the big picture theme and not necessarily the minute details, which you can discuss more in your small group. But I want to hit the big picture, so let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 5. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so they, that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows... Let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. You know, we've been dealing with some pretty lofty theology of the church, ecclesiology in 1 Timothy, and now we get to some very, very practical matters of family life. How are you all going to live together as a family? Again, if the basic premise is I'm forging a brand new family, I'm drawing people from, out from so many different cultures, I'm drawing in this context of Ephesus, I'm drawing these pagans out who used to worship the goddess Diana, and now they're mixed with these people who come from Jewish backgrounds, and people are now having to abandon their former families because of the faith, because it costs them everything to follow Jesus, and so many different contexts, and it's all mixing together. How is this going to work? How are we going to put people together? I start with two questions, which is really the beginning and the end of the message. It really is the whole point. And you have to answer it for yourself in your own heart. Do you consider the other members of your church, this church, as your family? In any meaningful way, not just some hyper-spiritual, theoretical way, but do you consider them as members of your family, your fathers and mothers, sisters, brothers, sons and daughters? When you look at the people around you and, and you see the, the young people and you see the preschoolers and the children, do you, do you see them with any sense of both affection and responsibility because they're like children and grandchildren to you? And, and when you look at those who are older than you, the senior members of our, of our church, do you look at them with that sort of affection and respect? Like, that's like my mother, like my father, like my grandmother, like my grandfather. And when something ill befalls someone, do you see them with that sort of pity that you would for your own child or that sort of care and concern that you might with your own parent? How do we see them? Do you see them this way? And if you do, 
If that's how you see it, as you should, as we all should, and we should pray to that end, God, increasingly make that the way I perceive the people that, God, you have given me, my new family. If so, how do you commit to living with and among and for one another? How do we do that? If this is how we see each other, and we should, how do we live together as we all? So let's talk about three foundation pieces, if you will, three essentials for, the, for a healthy family. If we want a culture of a healthy family as a church, if we want that to really mark us, and, and by the way, we've said now for several years that this is our identity. We are a family of everyday missionaries who make disciples. We're a family of everyday missionaries. We're ambassadors of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.20. God making his appeal through us. Therefore, we urge you to be reconciled to God. That's who we are. And we do it as a family, a family of missionary-making disciples. This is what we do. But it starts with the foundation and premise of a family. If this is who we are, what are three critical elements of that culture? Number one, it's this, to honor our elders. To honor our elders. Now, honor is sort of a broad term, and in the context of widows, it speaks to some specific things. At the very least, honor means a measure of right respect. There's an earned respect given to those older for their years, for their witness and testimony, for their faithfulness to Christ, for their value that they bring to the spiritual family. A church can only be so healthy without older people. It's going to reach a peak. Uh, there's no artificial numbering system, so I'm not saying you can score a church from 1 to 10, but if, if a 10 is a max potential for spiritual health, a church with no seniors in it, no elders in it, can probably best reach about half of its potential because the wisdom and the experience of those saying, listen, I've been where you've been, I've experienced what you've experienced, I've raised children, and I've influenced grandchildren, and I've, I've been in business, and, and, and I've raised a family, and I've done these things, and here's how you can do these things in honor of Christ. There ought to be an honor for our elders. And the honors we're going to see when it comes to widows, particularly in this passage, means more than just I respect you. It means I'll take care of you. It means I'll be responsible for you if need be. We're, we're going to care for one another. So honor our elders is number one. Number two, there ought to be a healthy sense of respect for our peers. Respect for one another. We're not all exactly the same, and we're in different stages, not just of life, but we're in different stages of our own spiritual journey. And how do we respect one another and encourage one another? We're not trying to crush those who are new believers and don't understand things that we understand. We're not trying to quench the, the fire of, of those who are just putting it all together. What does it mean to live as a follower of Christ? We want to encourage and help and motivate and, and be in the corner of each and every one. We have a respect for one another and how we deal with one another. And the third part of the culture of a healthy family is that we care for those who are most vulnerable and needy among us. We care for those who are most, most vulnerable and needy among us. I, I'll give you an example just in my own family. I have, I have two older brothers and older sister. And so many of you know, because I've shared this in prayer requests and things, that my mom is, is not in great health. And I wouldn't say things that, you know, I don't want to speak too much about that. Not in great health. You know, we, my siblings and I have talked, what, what could we do? What should we do? Well, when the question becomes, well, what could mom afford? That really doesn't weigh into the equation ultimately. What can we do together? We can make this happen. Is that assisted living? Is that nursing care? Is that providing for someone to sit in? And it's the same sort of things that all of you have questions about because not just do we love her as our mom, we also have a sense of responsibility that God has given us. In fact, this passage makes it clear that caring for those 
who are ours, our own family members, is pleasing to God. God designed you, sons, daughters, grandchildren, granddaughters, to take responsibility and give care for. And this isn't simply an equation. They did X, and so now you return Y. They gave you X number, and so now you return the investment played. Nor are you as parents now investing in your children like, I hope this plays out. I mean, sometimes I'll throw that out there to my kids. Like, I hope you're going to take care of me one day because this is the last $20 bill I've got. <laughs> but I'm not working that equation in my mind. Cecilia's dad used to famously say to us when he would give us money or you know, provide something for us, I'll just write it on the ice. I'll write it on the ice. When we were young in ministry and, and living on a very small income, uh, my first job in student ministry, Cecilia was teaching in a small Christian school. And I mean, we were just barely getting by, honestly. And a little grocery store nearby us, old school kind of grocery store, would let you have a tab, a monthly tab. We didn't have a tab. Cecilia's mom and dad had a tab, so we had a tab. <laughs> and that's just how they took care of us. We could put it on the tab. I've never repaid that tab, and I hope I can give it to my own kids and I'll give it back. But this is God's plan for us, that we care for those. And the passage makes clear that we do all this with purity. We do all this with purity. That means our relationships with one another have to be marked by godliness. Young men, when you're dating a young woman from this church, that's not just the pretty girl that you met on a Wednesday night. That's a sister in Christ. You have a responsibility in how you treat her, talk to her, what you do with her. It goes way beyond what this world understands. It goes way beyond even what her earthly father expects. It's what her father in heaven expects. You're in a dating relationship, you're dating a sister in Christ, you're dating a brother in Christ. What you do there has ramifications, not just on this plane, but on this one. We do all these things with purity. We care for one another with purity. We love each other well. We watch out for one another. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We are sons and daughters, mothers and fathers, and we want the best for each other. Let me spend just a few moments talking about widows here in this text because it's interesting. There are only two verses on relationships between older and younger, men and women, and like 14 verses on, on widows. So why is that here? Well, there are a couple of reasons, okay? And let me hit them very quickly. One, there probably is a contextual need that demanded it. There's something about the culture of Ephesus that we're probably not super familiar with that we couldn't be altogether aware of that said, Timothy, this is an issue right where you are, so you've got to figure this out. Much like it was in the early church in Acts, if you don't tend to this situation well, your church is going to get split up over it. It's going to get blown up over it, so fix this. But a bigger issue that applies in every place, in every culture, is not just whatever was happening that we try to figure out in Ephesus in the first century, but what is God's heart towards the vulnerable? What is God's heart towards widows? What is God's heart for those who are in need? And we can see again and again in Scripture, Old Testament and New, that God cares deeply for the widows. And how a church cares for those speaks very much of their understanding of God and also their possession of the heart of God. Do we love like God loves and love what God loves and love how God loves? And so it's both of those things all coming together. So let's talk about this just for a moment, just a short excursus, a little sidebar, if you will, on widows. Here's the statement, honor widows who are truly widows. So already you see there's a distinction being made. Not everyone who's lost a spouse, who's lost a husband, qualifies for the sort of care he's talking about for the church. Not everyone does. There's some delineations here. There's some exceptions made. There's some criteria given. First of all, let's start with the first word, honor. What does it mean to honor? Again, it goes beyond proper recognition. It's more than just having a respect for. It also means material support for. Now keep in mind in the first century, and this is a little different, but not totally different here. 
there's a culture of shame when it comes to poverty. And people would look down upon those in the first century, not unlike, more extreme, I think, perhaps than today, would look down upon those in poverty as being unworthy people or somehow deserving their lot in life. If you ended up that way and you don't have resources, it's your fault. You didn't study hard enough. You didn't work hard enough. You weren't honest enough. Or you, you live poorly in such a way that now you're in a, in a situation you deserve. And so there's this culture of shame. And so the church is supposed to come along and say, no, no, we sympathize with. We're, we're going to help rectify this situation. I think of the most glaring living examples of care for widows that I've ever seen, ever seen or experienced firsthand is what our partner ministry in Kenya does or, uh, as a sub part of the Echoes of Mercy ministry is the Widow's Voices. Those of you who've been tracking with us, you know that we went to Kenya last year and we did a widows conference. Um, I don't know the exact number, it shifts all the time, but maybe 1,500 widows were there um, trying to take care of them, minister to them, show love to them. The church there specifically gives material care for some, but not all. They build some houses for some. They provide material support, resources for some. There's a program that helps uh, seed small business, businesses for them. Um, we're partners with them. We've purchased a couple of acres of land that now they're growing crops on, that these widows will, will work those fields, they'll harvest those crops, they'll take them to the market on the weekends, and they'll sell the corn from, the, from that land. These sort of things that help them, material support to them. But they don't do it without qualification. We were talking with him the last time we were there with Pastor Moses, and we were visiting a home that had been built. He showed us the, the widowed woman whose home this was going to be, and he told us her story. And they apply the criteria that you see here. Does this fit this criteria of, of widows? Does this fit this? I think we would also be wise as we think about our own application that we expand the categories just a little bit. There, there's a category that's far more prevalent in our culture than it would have been in the first century. But this is a number, this is a group that we see more and more and more. And I think biblically speaking, our responsibility falls in the same regard. Uh, Kent Hughes, in his commentary on this book, writes this, and I think very, very spot on, very apropos. Listen to what he said. He said, today the application of this passage should be wider because modern American culture has produced a category of women virtually unknown in the first century. Christian women and children who have been abandoned by their spouses and left without family support. Godly single mothers are a new class of widow. And those without family and resources are the church's sacred responsibility. And I agree. I, and I think that's something we need to consider. This is not a letter of the law sort of thing where we say, oh, you're not a widow technically. We look at the needs and the concerns of those who are family to us. And I think about the church and its ministry and how the church honored and supported my family growing up. I was a child of a, of a divorced family. My mom raised four kids by herself. My parents divorced when I was two. My dad got remarried, whole new family. Um, any material support was minimal. Spiritual support was none. Personal support was equally minimal. Who took care of us? And I'm not saying paid our bills. I'm not saying bought us a house. I'm saying who loved us as family. I think of the godly men. I was sharing a bit of my testimony on a radio program this week and just reminded me of the heritage of my church, of godly men who looked at kids like me who didn't have a dad, didn't have a dad around, no functional dad. Yeah, I, had a, I had a father, but I had no functional dad in my life and looked on kids like me and said, I'll mentor them. I'll take those kids fishing. I'll coach that kid's team. I'll spend time with them helping them learn the Bible. I'll invite them to do stuff with my family. And God did that through a few, a handful of men in my life that I'll be forever grateful for. 
that's the sort of church's family life that makes a difference. So let's talk about real quick who qualifies. All right, here's some guidelines from the text. Who qualifies? Well, first of all, widows are the responsibility of, clearly according to Scripture, first, the first level of responsibility for widows in any situation is their own family. Is their own family. The church would certainly be right in saying we respect you and we love you and we want to care for you. But when it comes to the material support, the physical needs that you have, that responsibility falls on your children and grandchildren first. And that's not arguable in Scripture. First and foremost, their own children and their grandchildren. Um, for, for our widows here, that's who's first. That, that's who should be making sure that your needs are met, that your living conditions are up to par that you have the proper medical care, that someone's watching over you, that someone's involved in your life, that, that someone's there for you, that you're not alone. That's first. We're part of that with you and to love and care for, but the primary responsibility is there. Number two, those who have no family, no means of support. I've lost my husband, whether it's a single mom or whether it's a widowed mom. I've lost my family. I've lost my support. Those become the responsibility of the church. And let me add this in parentheses. When we talk about widows, that's not just the responsibility of deacons. You know, that's one of the downfalls of church as it gets larger and larger. It becomes a little bit more institutionalized. It becomes a little bit more programmatic. And so instead of seeing that widows as part of our family as a whole, that the entire church has a responsibility to care for, we'll sub that out to the deacons. Because we read somewhere in Acts chapter 6 that there was a widow problem, and so the deacons took care of widows. And we say, ah, oh, widows, well, we have deacons. Deacons do that. Deacons can be the leaders in that, and they lead by serving, and they serve and give example of, of service, selfless service, leadership through serving. But they're not the only ones. The church should be responsible for its widows. Number three, the church is to only honor honorable widows. Now, that's kind of hard, but that's true. Those who are honorable, look at some of the criteria. Are, are they old enough? This is not for everyone because presumably those younger ones will take care of themselves or they'll get remarried. Are they, were they faithful to their marriage? We have a widow. Is this someone who's been married three, four times? Is this someone who shows no commitment to a biblical, godly marriage? This person was faithful to their spouse and that spouse lived among us and we knew them and we saw their exemplary marriage. Now we want to take care of them just as their husband would have. Is this widow known for good works? Are they known for the sort of works that we see here, this above reproach? Does she have a reputation for that, how she brought up her children, how she took care of others by showing hospitality, how she cared for the saints and their needs, that euphemism of washing their feet? Did she serve the church? Did she care for those in need? Did she devote herself to every good works? And so the church makes a delineation between those who are just widows by cause and those who are honorable widows to be honored in a specific sort of way. Number four, honorable widows that we support, those younger widows then, not those ones that we're giving that material support to, younger widows and presumably widowers are to take care of themselves and remarry if possible. Just another way that you see in Scripture that Scriptures do make a distinction between men and women, roles and responsibilities. Paul didn't address Timothy about the young widowed men, the widower men. Why not? Presumably, they would be taking care of themselves. They would still be working. They would do what was necessary to take care of themselves. But these younger widows should remarry if possible so that they're not falling off after sin and temptation. Look at the description that he gives here for a moment. 
If we support those who are not worthy of support, what happens? Look at verse 13. They learn to be idlers. We're enabling them not to do anything. They become busybodies going from house to house. But I would encourage younger women to marry, bear children, to live the life that you would have lived had you not been widowed. And so that brings me to point number five. The church is not to enable anyone. We're not to be abused. Well, they're widows. We should be taking care of them. No, it says there's criteria here. We should look at those criteria. So we're not here to enable anyone to live an idle life. You know, sometimes um, the church is a target if people would want to take advantage of us. You know, we get frequent requests for money and support and, and always seemingly with the inference that we should be doing this. We are the church. The church ought to be doing that. But this teaching makes it clear that the church is not to enable anyone whether that's someone off the street that's looking for something or someone among us, if that enables them to not work, enables them to live an idle life, or simply allows them to continue to live an ungodly life. So he mentions these women who, listen to the description that we see in the text there for a moment. He says, if she has a reputation for good works, oh, let me back up, verse 6, one who's not self-indulgent, what does that mean? You may have a widow among you who has plenty of resources, and she uses them all on herself. She's self-indulgent. Why would you use a church's resources in time there? You would not. You would help those who have need, who don't have resources, who have lived a way that honors Christ, and so they are honorable. So the church doesn't enable anyone. Well, let me give you a summary of what we've looked at in this text for just a moment. Where we began and where we end. The supernatural bond that we have in Christ. That's closer and tighter than any natural bonds. It, it takes people who were far away from one another and far away from Christ. People from vastly different backgrounds, life experiences, cultures and even ethnicities, and it puts them together in one new spiritual family, one new supernatural family. The bond that we have then is Christ. It's the blood of Christ that runs through us, and that's what makes us spiritual family. And church takes on a whole new meaning and expression when you realize that, what God has made us. God didn't simply make us into a program that we attend, services that we provide and take advantage of, activities that we take part in, but ultimately who we are is, is family. Now think about that just for a moment. We could spend a lot of time, but I want you to wrestle with this in your own thinking as you leave and discuss this in your own smaller groups after this, this message. If we are a spiritual family, I mean family made by Christ, united, related, responsible for, loving one another, how many implications does that have? What does that look like in terms of our normal relationships with one another, how we're committed to one another, all those things, family. Think about this just for a moment. Those of you with, you know, kids at home or remember when your kids were at home, do you ever have any of those neighborhood kids that you'd have over at your dinner table some nights? How many of you have some of that? Some of you had the same neighborhood kids all the time at your dinner table. You know, it's like he always knew when, oh, you guys are, oh, I know you're having supper. Sure you did, because you're over here at five till six every night. <laughs> and those people, who, when you had your neighbors and kids, kids' friends at the table, you remember what that was like. But even then, there was a difference between your kids and their kids, right? I mean, your, your home is inviting, and you want everybody to come who wants to come, but you knew the difference between your kids and their kids. W would you agree there's a difference in relationship there? You also know in your own family a difference in responsibilities, right? I mean, in a, in a healthy family, you're not having to constantly define these because they're apparent, but you know who's in charge and who's not in charge, right? Would you agree? 
I mean, a healthy family requires that. This is not a democracy. I don't know how many times I've told my kids that. This is not a democracy. And even if I let you vote on something, it's really just for my amusement. <laughs> this is more of just an opinion poll or just basically to see if you agree with what I've already decided. But this, there's no democracy here. This is a benevolent dictatorship on its best days. And in fact, we spent a lot of time with, with my kids, particularly one, I won't say his name, Daniel, but <laughs> reminding him that you're not dad. In fact, we gave him the title Junior Dad, which he still uses today. It's not your job to tell your siblings how much syrup they can put on a pancake. <laughs> your mom and I got this. When we thank you for all your assistance, I don't know how we did it without you, but we got this. <laughs> but we know those responsibility lines. Same thing in church. I mean, the Bible does say whether or not you're particularly comfortable with the concept is thoroughly biblical. Obey those in authority over you because they have to give an account. And going back to that analogy of people sitting around my table, I mean, if you're sitting at my table, if my kids' friends are sitting there, they're going to act right and do the right thing. They're not going to say that, and they're not going to do that, and they're not going to, you know, there are certain things they're going to do. This is what we do at my table. But I'm ultimately not, not responsible for them. But I am responsible for my own. But this is, this is genuine family. This affects how we are as church. You see, sometimes that sense of clarity about our relationships not sometimes, always. That sense of clarity is critical to our health and functioning. We, we know who we have a commitment to. We know who our brothers and sisters are. Yes, those are friends and neighbors and are invited to the table, but it's not the same as my brothers and sisters. And, and those kids who spend enough time with me, that relationship would really change if they didn't have parents and they became part of my family. If I adopted them, if I invited them to move in and become part of my household, then I, now I do have responsibility for them. And, and, and as parents, I know who I have to give an account for, and, and it's not the neighbor's kids. Same thing in church. It's helpful for us that clarity provides relational depth that says, I know who my brothers and sisters are because we made a commitment to one another. I know who I'm responsible for because we're in a covenant together, one with another. These, this sort of membership that we have, why we do membership like we do, where we say, this is what we believe. This is what the Bible teaches what God has made us. This is what we'll do together. This is our life together, not just as an organization, certainly not as a corporation, but as a family, this is what we do because of who we are. This creates intimacy with us. And maybe the last analogy I could give in terms of family, maybe the rawest and the clearest would be this. You've got a young couple and they're living together. And they say they love one another and they're in a relationship with one another and they've got a tattoo on their arm that says always, but until they get married, anything is fair game. There's no commitment there, not in the eyes of the court, not in their eyes. They could walk out any time. They decide not to be committed. You think that creates intimacy to be in that sort of relationship? You, you think that fuels healthy relationship? It does the opposite of that. It undermines intimacy. It undermines health. It undermines the very values that you hope. Marriage is different. Marriage says, no, I'm committed to you. Marriage says, we're together in this for the long haul. I don't have to tattoo always on my arm. I've got that in my vows. I said it before the courts of heaven. I wear a ring around my finger that reminds me of that every day. That's what we're talking about. So when we make these commitments together, we say, I'm going to be a part of this church. We're not simply saying, I agree with what that church teaches. We're not simply saying, I'm going to do the things that church does. We're going beyond saying, I'm going to gather when that church gathers. What we're saying is, I'm going to love the people that are in that church. That's my family. I'm going to commit myself to them. And we're going to share tables together. And we're going to share life together. And, and, and sometimes when there's an older person in the church that's life is off course, I'm going to encourage them to get back on course. I'm going to be careful to follow the heart of this scripture. You know, that I'm not going to rebuke them. I'm going to encourage them. And I'm going to use the scriptures. I'm going to encourage them. And when it comes to a peer, I'm going to talk to them like a brother. I'm going to go face to face with them. 
And, and we might get nose to nose a little bit. I'm going to say, brother, I love you, and this is why I care about you, but as my brother, I'm not going to hold back the truth from you. I'm not going to soft sell this to you. I might think of the conversations, the warm conversations that my brothers and I have had over the years. You know, I think of the, you know, the warm conversation that sometimes involves some embrace and some rolling around in the grass. Um, those kind of conversations. But we love each other and we're willing to do those hard things. This is what we're going to do for one another. We're going to be invested in each other. We're going to care about one another. We're going to be committed to one another because we love one another. This is my family and I want my family to cross the finish line well. I want us all to be able to stand before the judgment seat and our Father say, well done. Well done, because we are family. And so that's who we are. And finally, I'll, I'll leave you with this thought. Our lives together as a supernatural family is one of the most compelling apologetics for the gospel. When I say apologetics, I don't mean something we're apologizing for. I mean a great defense of the gospel that makes the gospel plain is the fact that we can be family. You see, at the core, everybody really wants that. People want to be accepted. They want to be loved. They want to be known. They want to be part of something. They want relationships. That's why we see people migrate to different groups and organizations that will give them a superficial human version of that. God created us for those needs. God created us for that. Single mom, I hope you find a sense of family here that people will care for you. People will love you and they'll do it with purity. That the men here would be willing to serve you and help you and they would do that with purity. That everyone here would be looking out for you. Widows, I pray that you would feel that way, that people will care about you, they'll care about your needs, and they would know them, they'd be engaged. Not just a handful of representative servants, but the whole church, we would do that. I, I pray that the young people in church would feel like these older people around you, they're not just looking, you know, waiting for you to do something wrong so they can correct you. They care about you. They want you to finish well. They want you to go off to college and succeed. They want you to come back as a champion for Christ, not just successful in your business. But this is who we are. This is what we do. But that is such a compelling picture of the gospel. You know, it's not just your individual witness. It's not just your individual sharing the good news of Christ that makes a difference and helps grow a healthy church. That's vital. It's absolutely necessary to keep doing that. But it's our collective witness as well so that people come in and say, you know what, those people really love each other. Those people really care about each other. Those people really rally around each other. Those people really help one who's fallen. Those, really help, those people really help one who's struggling. Those people meet the needs of each other. Those people are there for each other. That is real family. Wow. How do I get that? I want that. That's what Christ does for us. And I pray that's who we'll be. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, I believe that you created us for, for supernatural family. I, I believe in spiritual warfare. I believe the enemy wars against that all the time. Petty conflicts and issues, superficial preferences, so many things that ebb away at that. Till we get to the point where church is just something that we come to. It is something that we watch or it's a service that we receive. It's not the people that we are, that we love and live together with. So, Father, I pray that we be increasingly gracious and, and merciful to those who are struggling, both in, in doubt and belief, but also with sin and behavior, that, Father, we would tell the truth, care enough to speak the truth in love and encourage and help and guide and coax and teach and correct with patience. Father, I pray we would care well for one another. Father, I suspect that even as we just scratch the surface of this, we don't know how deep this really goes and what your expectation of us really is. Father, I pray you impress that upon us more and more, with more and more clarity. And Father, this morning, we have such a vivid picture of family as three young people come to be baptized. They're not just your sons and daughters. They're not just independent, individual followers of Christ the King. They are that and our brothers and sisters. They are a family. 
in their baptisms, we commit our care for them and love for them, our, our identification with them as brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, our affirmation of the commitment that they've made, the, the response of faith that they're demonstrating, that we can affirm and say, yes, this, this is what makes us family. So, Lord, as they're baptized into this church, we thank you that you baptized us by your Spirit into Christ. And we belong to you. We thank you for the gift of the church, which is the expression of Christ in this world. His kingdom, his rule and reign. Everything that you intend for us to be lived out this way. So, Father, I pray that we would. Make us love your church as we love you. And Father, make our church healthy and well in increasing measure. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.